Well, we had an audio fail this morning, so I'm preaching this for the second time to an empty church uh, for the benefit of the three of you out there in internet world that are listening. We're in Luke chapter 14, and we're at verses 25 to 35 in the journey through Luke. Let me read uh, these verses from the NIV. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, you know from from past messages that I love music and certain periods of my life are time-stamped by whoever I was listening to at the time. Uh, Certain songs evoke certain memories and periods Uh, And in the mid to late 1990s, after a long period of time listening to all male, mainly American rock bands, I wanted to try a female voice and went into a record shop and bought a CD by a lady called Cheryl Crow in order to introduce myself to the concept that indeed a female singer could, could be a good thing as well, and she was. And I then began my Sheryl Crow phase that, that went on for just a few years and involved also seeing her live in Newcastle upon Tyne. And she has a song buried away in the middle of her first album, an obscure song on an obscure album that's called No One Said It Would Be Easy. And the next line of the song is, but no one said it'd be this hard. And It's a line that comes to my mind at times whenever the Christian life seems to be particularly difficult. Whenever the journey of following Jesus or the journey of leadership or whatever it may be becomes challenging and wearying, I find myself thinking no one said it would be easy, but no one said it'd be this hard. But I can't say that about Jesus because he did tell us that it would be this hard. He told us clearly how hard it would be and that those who would follow him need to count the cost. If we're not aware of how hard it is to be a follower of Jesus, it's not because he didn't tell us. It's because we didn't listen. It's become traditional in this part of Luke for me to say at the start of pretty much every message, this is a hard passage. But once again today, this is a hard passage. Jesus says some very difficult things here. 
But there's freedom in it as well. There is freedom in following Jesus. There is freedom in counting the cost and realizing the things that we will have to lay down, give up in order to follow him. A lot of people start off on the the journey of following Jesus, but somewhere along the line, it seems to fade out. And a word that you sometimes hear is that they get disillusioned. Disillusioned. But the very word disillusioned is, is used to describe someone who has been following an illusion. They have not been following the real thing. They have been separated. They have been disappointed. They have been let down by their illusion of what Jesus should be like. Hence, they are disillusioned. And the reason is because sometimes we fabricate a view of Jesus that is not actually the Jesus we read about in the Gospels. And therefore, after a period of time, we become disillusioned because our illusionary Jesus is not actually the real thing. Jesus has warned and mentioned in other places in in the Gospel of Luke about the real possibility that the seed of the word will germinate and will begin to grow in a heart. But after a while, the heat comes on and the little plant fades and wilts and dies. Or after a while, the cares of this life begin to choke the little plant that is growing. He has also spoken to those who put their hands to the plough and then look back at what's behind them. So this is a weighty passage about what it costs you and I to follow Jesus. He paid the cost for our sins. He's the only one who could atone for our sins. He's the only one who could see that temple veil torn in two and make a way of access for us to go to the Father. There is no way to the Father but through Jesus. It's a a songwriter, I think, from from Armagh years ago who wrote a, a hymn called There is a Green Hill Far Away. And there's a line in it that says, He only could unlock the gate. So Jesus is the one who has paid the cost, that has thrown open the door and that has allowed the invitation to follow him uh, to be a reality. So that, that cost is his cost. We can't pay that. But as we approach the door and as we walk through the door, Jesus wants us to know there is a cost involved in following him. We don't do these things. We don't pay a cost that allows us to enter. But when we do enter, there is a cost. The setting of of this passage today is in between two meals, which is no surprise in Luke where there are so many meals. Uh, In the early portion of Luke 14, Jesus is eating with Pharisees. It's the last time that he eats with them. And then in the early part of Luke 15, as he is about to, to go into parables of lost things, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. In between the two meals, he is journeying and there are crowds accompanying him. This is pretty common for crowds to accompany Jesus, for people to follow along at a safe distance, to show a degree of interest, but they are not fully committed disciples. And Jesus makes a distinction between them. The crowd know that he's going to Jerusalem, and they probably think that when he gets to Jerusalem, he will overthrow their Roman oppressors, He will confront Pontius Pilate and he will establish his kingdom. He will indeed, when he gets to Jerusalem, confront Pontius Pilate. 
but he will do so in chains and with blood already dripping from his severely beaten body. He will inaugurate, he will set up a kingdom, but not in the way that people expect it. Hence, I'm sometimes reluctant, as I mentioned last Sunday night at our baptismal service, I'm sometimes reluctant to use the term Christian because there's a vagueness to it in in the modern usage of it. There's even more vagueness about the term believe in God. Do you believe in God? So many people will say yes to that. A smaller number might say, yes, I'm I'm a Christian, but I like to use the term following Jesus. Are you following Jesus? And as we baptized people last Sunday night, I was careful to think about what what I would ask them before they went into the waters of baptism. And I came up with a with two questions. The first question was to ask them, Do you do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? And then the second question was, with the Spirit's help, do you seek to follow Jesus your whole life? And they said yes. And then we baptized them. Following Jesus is so much more direct, clear in terms of of what's going on than the slightly vaguer terms that we would use sometimes. A disciple would attach themselves to a teacher, learn from the teacher, go everywhere with the teacher, maybe even live with the teacher and further that teacher's teachings. Jesus speaks these weighty hard words to his disciples and to the entire crowd. He does not take the disciples to one side. He does not say to them, you are the elite. You are the special forces disciples. You're the top dogs. And I'll tell you these heavy things. He says this to the entire crowd who are following him. He says it to the seekers. He says it to the curious people. He will not soften up on the cost of discipleship. He never deceives anyone or misleads them about the cost of following him. He wants commitment, not just numbers. He wants disciples, not just converts. And in this passage, he lists three specific costs. He gives two illustrations. And then at the end, there is one salty warning in what is a salty passage. Cost number one, if anyone comes to me and does not hate Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. What? (laughs) Jesus, do you really want us to hate our families and hate our own lives? Well, no, he doesn't, because that would be contrary to the fifth commandment to honor our father and mother. It would be contrary to the new commandment to love one another. We have to understand that the words love and hate in this context are different from the way we would use them frequently today. A New Testament scholar called Craig Blomberg writes that unlike our English words for love and hate, Greek, particularly when influenced by Old Testament backgrounds as here, often used these words, love and hate, not to refer to an emotion, but to a commitment to speak of a person to whom one was more or less loyal. In other contexts, love and hate can mean choose and not choose. 
as in the famous statement of Malachi 1, quoted by Paul in Romans, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Love in the context of the Old Testament and the Greek usage of the New Testament is not an emotion or a feeling. It is a covenant commitment of loyalty towards someone. And hatred is not to despise or revile a person. It is that there is not a covenant commitment made to them as there is to the one that you love. Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. People are not affectionate about money. They love it because they're committed to it, but they don't love it because of warm feelings of affection. It is their their chosen commitment in life. And Jesus is saying here in this passage, not that we are to hate our families, but that we are to be in covenant commitment to Jesus and to what he says and to the call he places on our lives. And he is first priority over every other relationship and every other voice. For a Jewish person in the first century to step out of their background, their culture, their synagogue, their village, and say, I'm going to follow this young prophet who is going around Galilee calling people to follow him. To do that for a young Jew in the first century was to turn your back on your family and to have your family turn their backs on you. Family no longer has the last word. doesn't mean we neglect family. But our parents are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has the final word. Jesus is saying, I will tell you who you are. I will give you your identity. Earlier this year, I did a a module in a biblical counseling course taught by a guy called David Paulison, who died in 2019. And all his lectures and material have been recorded so people can go on using them. And he talked a lot about the voices of misleading counsel. Well-meaning voices that gather around and advise and counsel, but it is misleading. Jesus' voice has got to be the last word. Misleading counsel can come from many contexts. It could come from, from family. It could come from a friend. It could come from your boss. And we must not be ignorant regarding the good counsel that we receive from others that God has placed in our lives. But we need to be able to discern when counsel is good and when it is misleading. And we must hear a voice that is louder than every other voice. And that is the voice of Jesus. There was a missionary or a church leader in China called Watchman Nee. And there's a story told of Watchman Nee. I'm not sure whether at the time he was a student or whether he was a young teacher in a school. But he was brilliant. He was a brilliant academic. He had a bright career ahead of him, yet he was going to leave that all aside and go to be a leader in the church. And he was sitting with his principal in his principal's office explaining his decision and what he was going to do. And his principal questioned him and said, you know, you have this amazing bright future, this career out in front of you. You're so gifted. You're so intelligent. Why would, you, why would you throw it away? Why would you do this thing that you're planning to do? And Watchman Nee said to him, Sir, 
I hear a voice that you do not hear. I hear a voice that you do not hear. And ironically, when we put Jesus' voice ahead of every other voice, our relationship with him ahead of every other relationship that we have, we become better in all of those other relationships. The most important thing I can do as a husband is to have Jesus' voice and my relationship with Jesus as my top priority. I will then be transformed more into his likeness and I will be a better husband. The same goes for me as a father. My most important thing that I can do for my kids is to love Jesus more than anything and anyone. And then as I'm transformed into his likeness, I'll be a better father. I'll be a better employee as I follow Jesus and have his character formed in me. I'll be a better person to work with and to work for. The second cost is to carry your cross in verse 27. We sometimes use the term, you know, this is my cross to bear, to refer to some sort of minor inconvenience in life like a sore knee or a difficult colleague. This is not what it means in the first century context. To bear your cross, to carry your cross, was to go to your death. If anyone saw you carrying a cross, they did not think that you maybe had a sore knee or a difficult colleague. They knew that you were going to be executed and you had to carry the horizontal cross beam of the cross to the execution site. Carrying your cross means dying with Christ. Dying to old attitudes of envy, strife, jealousy and anger and selfishness and pride and turning to follow Jesus in newness of life. That is why we baptize disciples in the Great Commission. Jesus says, make disciples, baptize them. Because a disciple, a follower of Jesus, counts the cost, chooses to carry the cross, dies and rises again to newness of life, symbolized by baptism. We're not following political leaders like Rishi Sunak or Joe Biden. We're not following billionaires like Elon Musk or Bill Gates. We're following a man who before his mid-30s was ripped apart by Roman whips and nailed to a cross and killed. That's who we follow. And to follow him will involve suffering. It might not be physical. It might be. It may be relational. It may be financial. It will definitely be spiritual. But there will be suffering in the Christian life. It goes with the territory. It is unavoidable. No one gets through it without suffering. We are following a suffering servant, Messiah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So on Sunday night, we buried people in the waters of baptism and then we resurrected them again in newness of life. The third cost is in verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Not only do we need to elevate Jesus above every other relationship and have covenant commitment to him, not only do we need to bear our cross and die to ourselves and our ambition, we also need to be detached from the materialism of the world. 
John Stott described materialism as that which tethers our hearts to the earth. If an animal is tethered, it is tied to a post that is driven into the ground and the only part of this huge planet that that animal can explore is defined by the length of the rope which is the radius of the circle in which that animal can move. It cannot go beyond that. And materialism, John Stott says, is like a tether. It ties us. It does not allow us the freedom to fully live and fully enjoy life. It does not allow us to soar. It ties us and it binds us and it keeps us from soaring with Jesus as we were designed to. I think what Jesus is getting at here is the, not, not that he wants us to go home this afternoon and give away our, our car and our house and whatever money's in the wallet or in the bank. It's more a case of he wants to give these things up, our ownership of them and see them differently. See them as belonging to God and not belonging to us. See them as being his possessions that he has allowed us to steward for a time, for a season of our lives, and that he can add to them and that he can take away from them whenever he wants. And we hold them lightly that they do not become the be-all and end-all. One of my favorite movies is, is Heat. Uh, a cops and robbers film on a grand scale where Al Pacino is a cop and Robert De Niro is a robber. And as they chase each other, dodge each other through the film, it's like a character study into the two of them and it's really, really interesting. But the, Robert De Niro's character, Neil McCauley, says at one stage when he's talking to, to the cop, um, he says, do not let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. The heat being the cops. And his, he's a thief, he's a robber, and he's not a role model, but his attitude in his life was everything he was connected to, he held on to everything lightly, and that if, the, if he needed to let go, he could let go. For us as Christians, we need to hold on to our possessions very, very lightly indeed. And to look at them as being gods, belonging to him, steward by us for a season. It's my attitude towards the little half acre of ground that we live on. It's a tiny, tiny bit of this beautiful planet. It belongs to God, not to me. I have the privilege of stewarding it and looking after it for a season. The front driveway has got a lot of weeds in it. The reason is I don't want to spray glyphosate on God's creation. The back garden where the vegetables grow, there's quite a lot of slugs and bugs that I fight with all year trying to keep my veggies uh, healthy and well and fit to eat. I could use chemicals to kill the slugs and the bugs, but I don't want to put them on God's creation. I feed the birds that come into the garden. I see that half acre as not belonging to me, but as belonging to God. And he has allowed me to steward it and enjoy it. And I want to look after it well. I don't want to destroy it before it's passed on to somebody else. Similarly, if we're into materialism, into wealth, into stuff, we will find ourselves in the workplace trying to climb the ladder of promotion. But to climb that ladder, frequently you've got to trample on top of other people. And a follower of Jesus can't do that. 
cannot get to the top by trampling on others and putting them down and maybe need to content ourselves with a little bit less stuff and just stay in the middle of the ladder if we can't go any further without damaging others. Jesus gives a couple of illustrations, one about building a tower and one about a king going to war. He says if someone's going to build a tower, probably in a vineyard to protect their property, then they're going to count the cost and they're going to see, do I have enough to finish this? The same for a king going to war. If the king has got 10,000 soldiers and he's going to war against another king who's got 20,000, he needs to sit back and say, can I do this or am I going to get wiped out? And the, the whole point of those couple of little parables is, is Jesus is calling us to count the cost. To count the cost. It's vital for anyone who is considering following him. And it's massively important and massively underestimated for those who seek to be in ministry, in church leadership, or in serving in any way within the church, within the community, trying to bless people trying to love people, trying to show them the love of God, maybe youth work, maybe counseling, maybe sort of more traditional church ministries, whatever it may be, in all of those roles, there is a cost involved, a huge cost, a huge engagement in spiritual warfare with an enemy who despises us and wants to destroy us and stop us from doing what God has called us to do. We need to be people who count the cost. Jesus finishes with a warning regarding salt, something that has confused me in the past. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. And I didn't know that salt can sometimes, rarely by the, by the sounds of it, but can sometimes be put into the soil. Certain plants will grow a little bit better with a small amount of salt, so I'm told, beetroot being one of them. Other plants, it'll kill them, so I wouldn't advise it. And also it can be mixed in with manure and it will affect some of the chemical reactions that are going on in the manure uh, over time and can make it uh, hold on to the, the minerals better that, that we want to then spread on our ground before we plant things in it. So salt has usefulness in those contexts as well as giving flavor as well as being a preservative. But Jesus says if it loses its saltiness, we've got a problem. How does salt lose its saltiness? Only by being mixed with other things. If you put a little bit of salt into something, you will taste the salt in the, in the final product, whatever is being baked or cooked. You'll taste it, even a small amount of it. And the way, the only way salt can lose its saltiness is if there's vast quantities of other things mixed with it. If you put a little bit of salt in a glass of water, you'll taste it. But if you dilute it and dilute it and dilute it, you'll get to a point that you can't really taste it anymore. And how we lose our saltiness as followers of Jesus is whenever we allow lots of other things to come into our lives and to dilute our lives. We lose our saltiness. We lose our ability to preserve and to flavor society around us. And Jesus says that disciples who have, who have lost their saltiness, in this picture, it's pretty harsh. All through this passage, he's been very strong, very extreme in his choice of words. He says that salt that's lost its saltiness is, is no good to even throw on the ground or in the manure pile. It gets just thrown out. And our discipleship, our love for Jesus, our ministry to a hurting world is ineffective 
if our lives are full of mixture that has diluted out the, the character and the, the love of Christ and, that we have. In conclusion, Jesus is not trying to make it difficult to follow him. He's not excluding people. He is saying that we will not follow him unless we stop giving in to the other claims on our lives, the other voices, the other people, the materialism, the, the, the love of selfish ambition and grasping after power. He says all of those things have to be laid down. Materialism has to be given up. Other voices need to be put in their place and his voice given primary place in our lives. And there's a sad verse in 1 Kings 11:4, where Solomon, at the end of his life, a life that had so much promise and potential, but a life that was replete with so many bad decisions. And we read that as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon listened to other voices, and he became diluted in his thinking, became diluted in his passion for God, his ability to obey God. He made lots of decisions that were out of, out of sync with God's clear words to the king. His heart was not fully devoted John Stott writes that the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. Jesus has gone before us in all of these things. He never asks us to do something that he has not done. He had so many other voices around him, so many other relationships, so many people trying to clamor for his attention and get him to do what they wanted him to do. His brothers at the Feast of Tabernacles wanted him to go up to the feast and show everybody who he was. His mother on frequent occasions came to him and advised him and he didn't listen to her. The crowds tried to force him to be their king and he would not do it. Even Satan in the wilderness got into Jesus' ear and tried to get him to do all sorts of things that seemed logical enough. But Jesus didn't listen to all of those voices. He only listened to one voice, and that was the voice of God. He only did what he saw the Father doing. No other voice. He didn't get attached to material things. He had nowhere to lay his head. I don't know that he ever really owned anything. Even the very clothes that he had were taken from him and were divided up among the Roman soldiers who executed him. And he carried his own cross. These, these costs that we've talked about, these costs of following him, he himself has gone ahead of us in all of them. Plenty of people, if they get a chance at the end of their lives to reflect and look back, they regret time and devotion that they have given to various things. Maybe too much time, too much commitment to the workplace, too much pursuing after gain and after materialism and after things and after experiences. 
I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone who has followed Jesus and at the end of their life looks back and says, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't been so committed to him. I wish I hadn't been so devoted to him. But to follow Jesus is a hard thing. There is a cost, but there is a reward. There is liberty in these things, in carrying a cross and dying to selfish ambition, but rising to new life in Christ, in listening to the voice of the Father and allowing him to direct our lives, in, in holding material things in open hands very, very lightly, enjoying the blessings that God has allowed us to steward, but not finding our value or our worth in them. It's a hard thing to follow Jesus. I started off by quoting Cheryl Crow wildly out of context. No one said it would be easy, but no one said it would be this hard. But Jesus did say it would be this hard. It should not be a surprise in the Christian life when we hit suffering, when we hit difficulties. Jesus did say clearly how hard it would be. So I'll move from, from quoting Miss Crow to quoting Rand Collective from Bangor, who say, I've counted up the cost and you are worth it.